Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 16 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. You know, it occurred to me that I've been using the term awareness in many of my podcast episodes. Like in the last episode 15 of Buddha Belongs to the World, I talked about non-judgmental awareness and awareness without conceptual labels or emotionally charged stories. So what is this awareness I refer to? Merriam-Webster defines awareness, got to always go to the dictionary for definitions, right? As the quality or state of being aware, knowledge and understanding that something is happening or exists. You know, actually the first part is a pretty good definition. After that, it sinks back into thoughts with the words, quote-unquote, knowledge and understanding. You know, I like that it uses the phrase, quote, the state of being, because it said the quality or a state of being aware. So I like that it uses that phrase, state of being, because when we are aware, we are in a state of being aware that something exists. But let's play with that a little. Being aware is a state of being aware. It doesn't say a state of the self or any subject being aware or of thoughts being aware, but of a state of awareness. Awareness as being aware. Now I realize I'm getting into sort of Zen koan territory, but stay with me a while. Don't give up. I think you're going to get where I'm going here. So to play with this some more, let's go to the word state. Because remember, it was state of being, state of being aware. So state, again, referring to Merriam-Webster, the word state is defined as a mode or condition of being. So we arrive back at the concept of being again. Okay, bear with me, still going a little farther on this. Because it's a trick, you know, this playing with words and etymology. and uh, It's a trick I use to shake up my preconceived concepts of what things mean. And in playing with these words, what do we keep coming back to? A state of being. A state of being aware. Being aware of being aware. And to push it further, I think you can stretch your mind to maybe agree with me that since a subject or object isn't implied, except that something is happening or something exists, so that was the state of being aware that something is happening or something exists, then let's define awareness as a state of being aware without the who that is being aware or the who that is being aware of what. 
You may think I am playing mind games and this is just a big koan test, and maybe I am. But one thing I can share with you that will help your practice of everyday Buddhism is always to question your assumptions. Question your conceptualizations. Question, always question this, subject and object. So, given the definition I just posited, how many times in your day, or how many times in any of our days, do we think we are actually in a state of being to begin with? Mostly, I think we are in a state of thinking, or a state of planning, even if we are doing. Then there's the whole aware part. Being aware of something happening or that something exists. I have to ask, are we even aware of these things as they are happening? Or are we thinking about the last thing we just did? Or the next thing we're going to do? Or the next thing we're planning to say? Or agonizing about what we didn't say? You know, are we ever aware that we are just there experiencing awareness? That our self is in a state of awareness. Are we aware that someone else is over there existing right with us? Also aware. From my personal experience, I'm going to answer these questions for us. You know, it's rare when I am in a state of just being, when I am aware that I'm just here and being aware of things happening, period. You know why that is? It's because I've been kidnapped. Yep, kidnapped and carried away by my thoughts. It's as if some sort of alien being slipped into my head and started dictating internally what I should do or how I should do, or I should do this, or I should do that, or I should feel this way, or I should feel that way, and on and on and on. It's so noisy and demanding in that head of ours that it's hard to be aware of our beingness or our awareness. I know we've talked about the importance of mindfulness and about meditation, but there's something else that is equally important to those trying to incorporate the tips and tricks of everyday Buddhism. And that is this awareness thing itself. But first, let's talk about the different types of meditation just to establish a baseline of what meditation and mindfulness is before and along with getting into what awareness is. So I will propose that there are three general types of meditation. And I'm going to shout out a thank you to Giovanni, and I might be butchering his last name, Giovanni Dienstman for his article, quote, an overview of 23 meditation techniques I found on his website, liveanddare.com. He helped me frame and synthesize this sort of far-reaching and diverse subject that is meditation. And trying to sort it out, I kind of got to be a jumbled mess. And he kind of cut through all of it to come up with these sort of three basic overarching platforms of meditation techniques. So the first one he refers to as focused attention. 
So this is pretty obvious, focusing the attention on a single object during the whole meditation session. This object may be, you know, the breath, the mantra, visualization, you know, part of being aware of part of the body or an external object. You know, some of the examples of this type of meditation are shamatha or calm, calm abiding, some forms of zazen, uh, loving kindness or metta meditation, chakra meditation, kundalini meditation, sound meditation, mantra meditation, and pranayama. All these things focus on a specific thing. Second type of meditation, broad overview, is open monitoring meditation. So instead of the focusing on it, focusing your attention on any one object, when you use open monitoring meditation, your focus is open, taking in sort of all aspects of your experience without judgment or attachment, all perceptions either internal, like thoughts, feelings, memories, or external, like sound, smell, etc. They're all acknowledged as they are without engagement or reaction in a moment-by-moment experience. Examples include mindfulness meditation, vipassana, and some types of Taoist meditation. Um, The kind of meditation I typically use in the unified mindfulness system sort of fits into that category. And number three, the effortless presence category. Don't you love that? Effortless presence. This is the state where the attention is not focused on anything in particular, but on awareness itself in a quiet, empty, and inward gazing way. This also can be referred to as awareness meditation, choiceless awareness, awake awareness, or just pure being. You know, this is effortless presence or awareness of awareness. And this this type of meditation, this awareness of awareness, is actually the true purpose behind all kinds of meditation. This is where we're supposed to get, if there is any place to get, right? If If we were to get a glimpse of enlightenment or that sense of transcending self, you sort of need to get here where you're just sitting in open awareness. All traditional techniques of meditation recognize that the object of focus and even the process of monitoring is just a way to train the mind so that effortless inner silence and deeper states of consciousness can be discovered. So eventually both the object of your focus, the object of focus of your meditation and the, uh, the meditation process itself falls away, let you leave it behind. So what's left then is your pure presence, your pristine awareness. In some techniques, this is the only focus from the very beginning, not just as a byproduct of where you end up with these other practices. So examples of meditation techniques that use this as the primary focus are the self-inquiry types of meditations or I am meditations. These were uh, taught and made popular by Ramana Maharishi and also by the Tibetan Dzogchen and Mahamudra uh, teachings and some forms of Taoist meditation and also some advanced forms of Raha Yoga. So this type of meditation is thought to require previous training to be effective. Yet, 
After my brief discussion of the different types of meditation, I propose that maybe we can get a feeling for or glimpse of that true awareness, that pure presence, just by practicing being aware as we go through our day. There are many different meditation techniques based on different religious practices and no religions at all. But I believe all of them can be characterized by one or more of these three types by, proposed by Giovanni Densman. And at the risk of making this a catalog episode, I will briefly discuss the different types of meditation that I'm aware of. And, you know, there's a flavor for everyone and maybe open your eyes to some other things that you might try. Number one would be, well, the first one I'm going to list is not number one. The first one is Zazen. Um, we've all heard of Zen, or Zazen, just sitting with its roots in the Chinese Zen Buddhism or Chan tradition, tracing back to the Indian monk Bodhidharma in the 6th century. And in the West, its most popular form comes from Dogen Zenji, who lived 1200, in the 1200s there. He's the founder of the Soto Zen movement in Japan. Other Another type of manifestation, meditation that uh, I'm sure most people are aware of is Vipassana. It's a Pali word that means insight or clear seeing. Um, it is a traditional Buddhist practice dating back to the 6th century BC. Uh, Vipassana meditation, as taught in the last few decades, uh, comes from the Theravada Buddhist tradition that was popularized by S.N. Goenka and the Vipassana movement. Mindfulness meditation is another form of meditation, but it's an adaptation from those traditional Vipassana practices. It also has some influence from other lineages like uh, the Vietnamese Zen Buddhism of Thich Nhat Hanh, who emphasizes mindfulness. Um, the, the common Western translation for is mindfulness, but it really does uh, originate in the Buddhist term sati. And one of the main influencers uh, for mindfulness in our sort of secular culture, and those of you may have uh, practiced it this way or originally heard of it this way, coming it comes from John Kabat-Zinn. And his mindfulness-based stress reduction program is what I would say absolutely popularized it and got it into the consciousness of our culture because he developed this mindfulness-based stress reduction program, or MBSR, in the late 1970s at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And it consequently went on to be used in other hospitals and clinics to help people improve their health by reducing their stress. The other kind of meditation is loving kindness or meta meditation. A meta is a Pali word that means kindness and goodwill. This practice comes from the Buddhist traditions, you know, especially Theravada and Tibetan lineages. This compassion meditation <clears throat> is something that uh, the contemporary scientific field has used to demonstrate how it actually works in meditative practices. They've actually had scientifically 
um, proved demonstrated benefits of boosting one's ability to empathize with others, um, the development of positive emotions through compassion, including a more loving attitude towards oneself, so increased self-acceptance, and a greater feeling of competence about one's life and an increased feeling of purpose. So it's been used quite frequently in um, our popular culture within the psychology field and in, in scientific studies. Another meditation that I'm sure everybody has heard of is mantra meditation. A mantra is a syllable or word, usually without any particular meaning, but although it can have a meaning, and it's repeated for the purpose of actually focusing your mind on saying those syllables, but not in a way that is typically an affirmation, although and sometimes it can be sort of like an affirmation. Some meditation teachers insist that both the choice of the word and its correct pronunciation is very important due to the vibration of the sound associated with that word plus the meaning. And that for this reason, they typically have initiations into doing this type of practice because it's a, a special practice that you have to understand uh, the importance of both the sound and the meaning of the word. Others say that the mantra itself is only a tool to focus the mind, and the chosen word is completely irrelevant. Mantras are used in Hindu traditions, Buddhist traditions, including Tibetan, especially Tibetan Vajrayana practices, as well as Sutrayana practices, and in Pure Land uh, Buddhism, as well as in, uh, Pure Land and Shin Buddhism, as well as in Jainism, Sikhism, and Taoism. And another kind of related practice is uh, to the mantra practice is transcendental med meditation. Now, transcendental med meditation is, is another form of uh, mantra meditation, but it's very specific and it, as introduced by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in 1955 in India. And then he brought it to the West, and it was, of course, made popular in the late 1960s and early 70s. And anybody my age, or maybe just a little younger, knew that uh, the Beatles are the ones that introduced Maharishi to the world and kind of made him famous. Um, also, the Beach Boys, too, I think, uh, practiced, practiced with Maharishi, Mahesh Yogi. And it, it still is a widely practiced form of meditation. And according to the article I read, it was over 5 million practitioners uh, use this uh, technique worldwide. And then there's many different types of yoga meditation taught in the yoga tradition. Yoga means union. And this tradition goes as far as 1700 BC and has its highest goal as spiritual purification and self-knowledge. Classical yoga practice consists of, you know, rules of conduct, physical postures, breathing or pranayama exercises, and the contemplative practices of meditation. But most people today, when they hear the word yoga or hear about yoga or do yoga, they're thinking of you know, the physical practice and the physical postures or sanas. But the yoga tradition is the oldest meditation tradition on earth. 
and also the one with the widest variety of practices. They include like third eye meditation, chakra meditation, kundalini, uh, sound or nada yoga, tantra, and pranayama, which is the breathing techniques. Now, the other uh, another meditation technique is, as we kind of talked about a little earlier, is the self-enquiry in the English translation, um, which is the English translation of the Sanskrit term Atma Vachara, which means to investigate our true nature, to find the answer to who am I? That who am I question, which culminates supposedly with the intimate knowledge of our true self or our true being. We see references to this meditation in old Indian texts, but it was popularized again and expanded by the 20th century Indian sage Ramana Maharishi. And the modern non-duality movement, or Neo-Advaita, which is greatly inspired by his teachings, used these techniques, these self-inquired Inquiry techniques and variations. Many contemporary teachers use this technique as well, most famous ones being Muji, who was a direct disciple of Sri Harila Punja or Papaji, um, who was the renowned Advaita master, and the teachers Adi Ashante and Eckhart Tolle. But I believe Adi Ashante studied in the Zen tradition and Eckhart Tolle was influenced by Christian mystics. So there's kind of a mishmash and a lot of cross influences here, which just goes to show how wide in uh, meditation, uh, how widely dispersed meditation is in all these religious traditions. And they all, they may have influenced each other, but I think in sociological terms, it's hard to tell whether it was the influence of one on the other or all these techniques were developed about the same time, just slightly different based on the religious t- traditions. It's always been of interest to me. So you may have also heard of this self-inquiry or pure awareness method. It's currently kind of popularized and, and taught by um Locke Kelly in his Awake Awareness teachings and in his book, Shift into Freedom. This is something I've been experimenting with, and I'll talk a little bit about it later. Um, I, I find it uh, very useful, and, and I think it's uh, very appropriate for people who are investigating uh, contemplative practices or meditative practices to improve their uh, everyday well-being, sense of happiness, sense of compassion, sense of love, you know, without any religious baggage, if you will, from a secular or everyday Buddhism point of view. So La Kelly teaches this awake awareness method in his his book and many videos on, on YouTube and so on his website. It's also popularized by Sam Harris. Um, you, I'm sure a lot of you have heard of Sam Harris. He's the atheist philosopher, neuroscientist, author, and podcast host of Waking Up, which is a podcast I frequently listen to. Um, Both Kelly and Harris were students of Tolkul Urgen Rinpoche, the Tibetan Kagyu and Nyingma lineage master, who was renowned for his pointing out instructions of Dzogchen. And La Kelly also studied with his son, his uh, Urgen Rinpoche's son, Mingyur Rinpoche, who then asked Kelly to teach Sutra Mahamudra. So he, he, was, he brought Mahamudra to 
contemporary culture. Now, just a couple other meditative areas to talk on before we get more into awareness. Taoism is another meditative practice. It's a Chinese philosophy and religion emphasizing living in harmony with nature or the Tao. And its main text is, of course, the Tao Te Ching, dating back to the 6th century BC. Later on, some lineages of Taoism were also influenced by Buddhist meditation practices brought from India. But the chief characteristic of this type of meditation is to generate or transform and circulate inner energy. The purpose of that is to quiet the body and mind and unify your body and your spirit with the Tao, with nature. Some styles of Taoist meditation are specifically focused on, you know, improving health and uh, giving longevity. Another one similar is Qigong meditation, very similar in this uh, uh, movement of energy. And Qigong is a Chinese word that means life energy cultivation. And it's a body-mind exercise for, you know, health as well as meditation and also used in the martial arts. It typically involves slow body movement, inner focus, and regulated breathing. Traditionally, it was practiced and taught in secrecy in the Chinese, Buddhist, Taoist, and Confucianist traditions. And in, but in the 20th century, the Qigong movement has incorporated and popularized Taoist meditation and uses mainly the um, concentrating exercises or concentrative exercises that focuses on circulating energy in your body. And then the other uh, two meditation techniques I'll touch on quickly is Christian meditation. Um, and and it's a, the goal of these contemplative practices would be um, a deeper understanding of, of the Bible or a closer relationship with God or Christ. Um, there are all sorts of mystic forms of this as well, but some of these forms are contemplative prayer, contemplative reading, and sitting with God in a silent meditation. And the other practice that we haven't touched on, actually there's a couple, um, Sufi meditation. You know, we all, I think we've, we've heard of the whirling Sufis. A Sufi meditation is sort of the esoteric uh, part of Islam, where the goal is to purify oneself and achieve a mystical union with the supreme Allah. The practitioners of Sufism are called Sufis, and they follow a variety of spiritual practices, many of which kind of were influenced by the tradition of yoga in India. And so they're, they, they typically, uh, you know, contemplate God, do Sufi mantra meditation, you know, heartbeat meditation, breathing meditation, gazing, walking, and that Sufi whirling that we've all heard of and seen. And then there's guided meditation. Guided imitation. Guided meditation is is uh, you'll find plenty of these on the internet, um, YouTube, and on most of the, are these the meditation apps that we have on our on our smartphones. They're just chock full of guided meditation, and it's a you know it is a great way to start and a great way to incorporate yourself in these different traditions these different areas and i would highly recommend it if you don't have an established meditation practice or need to get it moving again 
you know, it's good to start with these guided meditation, but, but then it's, you know, it's like the, the, the story of, uh, leaving the raft behind, you know, you use the guided meditations to get yourself going, but at a certain level, it's good to stop and do your own meditations. But so in these guided meditations, you know, there's a teacher will, will talk you through a traditional meditation, guiding your intention and your, uh, your awareness where it needs to go, you know, without music, but just with, with, with talking you through the meditation phases or steps. Um, you'll find these by, especially you'll see them by Titnat Han and Tara Brock. But there are also these guided imagery ones, relaxation and body scans, affirmations, and that unique new modern one called binaural beats. Although I guess it's not so modern because I researched it. It was discovered in 1839, okay, by a physicist named Enrique Wilhelm Dove. He discovered that when you, you he used signals of two different frequencies separated, you know, one in each ear, the brain then will detect the phase variation between the two f- frequencies and then try to reconcile that difference. And then that generates different types of uh, brain waves in your, in, in, your, in your brain, like alpha waves, beta waves, theta waves. So um, this is how binaural beats work. And some people, I know people I've talked to that swear by it. I know I've used them before for studying or for writing. They've been very helpful for me. Um, I've not used it for like pure meditation or sleeping, but a lot of people swear by these. So that's sort of our quick guided tour around the world of meditation. I hope I didn't bore you, but I thought at some point we should really touch on this. But now that we have toured the many ways to meditate, let's get down to the heart of it. Like I said at the beginning of this or in talking about the meditation, uh, sort of the point, if there is a point of meditation, is to get beyond the method. Get beyond the subject, I meditate. Get beyond the object of what you meditate on and reach that state of pure awareness. And I won't go into all the different types of awareness or pure presence teachings and teachers because um, we've already done a lot of this cataloging, cataloging. But there are a lot out there now, including those I mentioned earlier and that you've probably heard of, like Muji, Adyashante, Eckhart Tolle, and Locke Kelly. They've emerged from different traditions and teaching styles, including that uh, modern non-duality or Advaita movement, Tibetan, Dzogchen, and Mahamudra, and the self-inquiry method that was exclusive sort of methodology of Bhagavan Sri Ramana Maharishi. So if you want to dig deeper, you'll find many to choose from, and I will put links to a few that I'm more familiar with in my show notes on my website. So as I talked about at the beginning of the episode, how many times in a day are we truly aware? Or maybe I should be more precise and say, how many times are we truly aware of being aware? Because that's really the heart of the matter, like I told you. Awareness is simply that. It doesn't have to be aware of something. Our minds are aware by their very nature. 
Yet that nature is obscured by thoughts and emotions, like the clear blue sky is obscured by clouds. And, you know, sometimes those clouds are white puffy clouds, cumulus clouds, and sometimes they are dark and angry. And we normally don't judge or conceptualize the clouds, I guess, unless we're planning an outside event or are a weather buff. We have confidence, though, that the clear blue sky is there behind them. But like I said earlier, we are generally not aware of our clear mind of natural awareness because we've been kidnapped by a train of thoughts and all the emotions they kick up. Getting to know awareness is easier, though, if we first practice some sort of meditation. Meditation with an object, for example, like the breath or mantra or gazing at a candle. When we are meditating on the object and we become aware that we lost the object of meditation because we got kidnapped and we're on a journey on that train of thoughts, then at that moment we've become aware that we were kidnapped. As long as we don't judge ourselves or criticize for letting the train of thoughts carry us away, we are in a perfect state of awareness because we've become aware of what's going on in our mind without moving that awareness. That's why when I'm working with a coaching client in the practice of mindfulness or meditation coaching, I tell them that when they become aware that they got lost in a thought, it is a huge success and something to celebrate in the practice of meditation. If they can notice it, be aware of it without judgment, they will have ex successfully experienced a moment of clear awareness. And that clear awareness can also be the object of your meditation. So you can switch it. You can move it from watching your breath or saying a mantra or looking at a candle flame to then the awareness itself. That awareness exists between those thoughts. It exists underneath our emotions. And if we are meditating on the arising and passing away of thoughts and emotions, then I encourage you to look for it between the arising and passing away of thoughts. Look for it, but don't chase away thoughts. And don't judge thoughts of, as like they're getting in your way now. Just quietly observe the arising and passing away of thoughts and be aware of that space in between. If you look back, if you look in, you'll spot it. You may only notice it for a few seconds before you're kidnapped by another thought or emotion. But don't beat yourself up. You will notice it. You will notice it again. And you will be aware of noticing that you're aware. Our problem tends to be that we try too hard. We grasp at being a meditator, at doing it right, at trying not to think. And as soon as we do that, we've put a death grip on the relaxed and spacious awareness that is our mind's natural way of being. And if we think the opposite, going into our meditation practice with the goal of like chilling or being calm, then we are most likely to drift away in a daydream, allowing the thought train to kidnap us until we are a million miles away. So to catch a glimpse of awareness, it's best to be like Goldilocks. 
looking for a space there between the thoughts. But don't look too hard and don't be too soft on yourself. Or as the story goes, the Buddha taught when asked how, what's the right way to practice meditation? He said it was like getting the perfect sound by properly tuning a stringed instrument. You want to make sure that these strings are tuned not too tight or not too loose. So our mental attitude around awareness and meditation should not be too concentrated or too relaxed. A good way to investigate this for yourself is to think of moments in your life where you have experienced, if even briefly, a sense of being aware of yourself in life as part of life or an experience while not actually feeling or thinking about yourself in that moment of of awareness, just noticing that you're there, just experiencing that you're there. There are a few times in my life where I've been aware of myself in life as life. Some people refer to these as peak experiences or moments of insight. I think of them as a glimpse of everything as perfection and myself as part of that perfection. I think of them as a glimpse of enlightenment. But, you know, in most cases, they've been far too rare and only just glimpses. But relatively recently, I've actually worked on a practice to experience those moments by seeking after them using a meditative awareness practice. Typically, and I'm sharing it with you because it's really been working for me. So typically, the way I've been able to experience moments of awareness in my meditation practice is to start with my typical meditation practice, which is In my case, I use the unified mindfulness see-hear-feel practice that I've referred to in earlier episodes, which, by the way, I will post links to this on my website, on the show notes. So I use the unified mindfulness see-hear-feel practice that I, I think I've referred to it in early episodes. And I use the typical focus for me, since I'm an auditory person, um... I either use hear out using external sounds as my object of focus, like my dog scratching, a bird, the wind, the coffee maker, the furnace kicking on, whatever. Or I use a sort of do nothing, see, hear, feel, where it's more just like sitting with a overall free-floating awareness of whatever comes, see, hearing, and feeling without uh, a dedicated focus on, on, on one area or sensory area. After I've been stable for a while in that practice, probably about five minutes or so, I, f- see, I feel that I've opened up my space and I, uh, the thoughts are coming and going and I'm not chasing them, okay? I'm not following them. And when I'm at that level of stability, I turn my awareness of sound or hearing, I turn it around, I switch it up, I turn it 360 degrees, or maybe, no, I turn it 180 degrees. Um, I use a technique taught by Locke Kelly where I note that I am hearing, okay, so I hear a car going down the street, I note that I've heard, heard the car. I don't necessarily label it car, but I note that I hear the sound. And then 
I turn my awareness back around at myself and ask, who is hearing? At that point, my awareness will typically unhook. That's the term Locke Kelly refers to it as. It unhooks from the thinking area inside my forehead. You know, that's where you think, right between the eyes, above on your forehead. And it shifts either down to my heart or sort of outside of myself, behind my head. And it's an actual physical sensation of awareness getting out of my head and being somewhere else. And in an empty, I mean in a spacious, not empty really, it's a spacious feeling of awareness. So it's not a controlled, thought-driven feeling of awareness, but it gets real big, real spacious. So I become aware of a spacious awareness that isn't hooked or anchored to myself, quote-unquote. You know, there are other methods to practice this, and I will put links in my show notes on my website. But I did want to share this with you because it's been helpful to me, and it really is a way you can um, adopt a practice that you can take with you during the day because you, at any moment in time, you can turn that awareness of a, seeing an object or hearing an object back on itself and experience this sort of brief aha moment of peace, moment of pure awareness, which opens your heart and you know stops you from judging yourself or others. And it really it brings you to the moment. You know, prior to actively practicing this, I merely, you know, sort of found myself in these experiences of spacious awareness. It's happened to me off and on throughout life, and I'm sure it's happened to you too. And so I hope that maybe my relating these experiences will help you connect with the experiences you have had of being in awareness or being aware of a subject and subjectless and objectless open awareness of your experience, just that state of being aware of awareness. As a child, they came while I walked in the woods or sat with my back against a tree watching a squirrel. But as an adult, I remember four actually vivid examples of these divine portals beyond feelings, perceptions, impulses, and words. One occurred on a late September afternoon overlooking Canandaigua Lake, which is one of the Finger Lakes located near me, while standing on the deck of a friend's condominium, which was built into the side of a steep hill in in the Bristol Hills. My hosts and guests went into the condo for a minute, taking with them, you know, their happy party leaf-peeping chatter, and I remained on that deck alone, And I sat watching a lone turn ride drafts against a dark, cloudy sky. That was all. But time stopped. Thought stops. My sense of stealth stopped. I was exhilarated by an immense joy beyond reason or cause. I became that turn. I wasn't really me, but I was aware that I was watching that turn. I wanted to describe this again to my companions when they joined me, but I had no words. I still have no words. Three other experiences happened in far less poetic settings. One was while watching our adopted shelter dog, Ayla, who is now gone. 
she was contentedly chewing her chew toy. At that moment, just watching her chew her chew toy, I my awareness sort of expanded beyond myself as she, watching her as I was watching her chew to become both her chewing, the chewing, and me watching her chew, although I didn't identify with me at the time, but I was aware of it. Then another day, I glanced out the window near my desk, taking a break from my work and computer screen, and noticed my elderly neighbor brushing the snow slowly from his car. I watched for a few minutes that seemed like hours. Nothing happened here that I hadn't seen a million times before, but his slow, attentive, careful, and caring snow brushing penetrated my heart with a simple yet brilliant love for this neighbor, for myself, for everyone and everything. And another time where I experienced the grace, I will call it, the grace of a peek into the perfection of everything was while lying in bed, ill and in pain. It seems like an odd time to feel this, but in, in researching this practice with others, they say sometimes the experiences of pain and discomfort can help if you focus on it and turn your awareness back in. So I'd been ill for some time. I was exhausted and depressed by the pain and the lack of promise for a quick resolution. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, I totally relaxed into the pain, into the depression, into the fear, and was able to be in it completely as an experience alone. Was I, I stopped characterizing it as bad, as pain, as suffering, and then that precise moment, I wasn't me experiencing pain. It was just me experiencing the experience. Some might describe these experiences as the sort of thing described in the Bible. In Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which passeth, passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then the Indian poet Rabindranath Tagore was watching the sunrise in a Calcutta street when he wrote, Suddenly, in a moment, a veil seemed to be lifted from my eyes. There was nothing and no one whom I did not love at the moment. From a Buddhist perspective, I think of these experiences as glimpses of enlightenment, as I mentioned before, or temporarily experience what, in, what is referred to as shunyata or emptiness or suchness. Someone who has reached total enlightenment is a Buddha. The Buddha referred to himself as Tathagata, which means the one who has thus come or the one who is thus gone. So it means one who resides totally in suchness. Thus gone is to go beyond self. And when one goes beyond self, one lives from the heart and as Tagore wrote, there is nothing and no one whom you do not love, if even for a moment. The great Prajnaparamita mantra from the Heart Sutra praises this thus goneness, this enlightenment, in, in the verse, Gate, gate, para gate, para sam gate, bodhisvaha. Gone, gone, gone beyond, gone altogether beyond. Oh, what an awakening, all hail. To truly understand or reside in suchness is as described in the 5th century Chinese Mahayana scripture, Awakening of Faith in the Mahayana, 
quote, the highest wisdom which shines throughout the world. It has true knowledge and a mind resting simply in its own being. It is eternal, blissful, its own self-being, and the purest simplicity, unquote. I don't believe that awakening is foreign to us. We may not be residing in it permanently, but I believe we have all glimpsed it. The Heart Sutra reassures us that we are, in fact, the stuff of suchness. We have this enlightenment potential in us because the Sutra says whenever, whatever is form, that is emptiness. And whatever, empty, whatever there is emptiness, that is form. So you don't have to really believe anything to experience this awareness. It isn't the property of any religion, as, as clearly I stated when I walked through the sort of catalog of different meditation traditions coming from all religions, nor is it necessary <clears throat> to believe in God or religious belief systems or any religious mythology. As I discussed early in the episode, there are many methods used to reach that awareness taught by almost every religion. But I agree with Sam Harris, who wrote Waking Up, and Robert Wright, who wrote Why Buddhism is True, that Buddhism seems to have cornered the market in communicating the, quote, nature of mind, and that most of the scientific research now done on meditation focuses primarily on Buddhist techniques, because they work. But even when not in meditation, as I just talked about, it is possible to glimpse an awareness that transcends your hooking in to that endless stream of thoughts, and essentially it transcends yourself. You may have had the experience while participating in art, sports, or fitness. You may have had the experience like I did in nature. It is, as Shunru Suzuki said, quote, when you do something, you should burn yourself completely, leaving like a good bonfire, leaving no trace of yourself. Sometimes when we are completely one with an activity we do, we do burn ourselves completely because we have become the experience. Circling back to my original playing with the words, we enter a state of being the experience, being the awareness. One of the teachers of the effortless presence or choiceless awareness or pure being I mentioned earlier, Adi Ashante, wrote that, quote, true meditation has no direction or goal and that it appears in consciousness spontaneously when awareness is not being manipulated or controlled, unquote. This seems to speak to the experience I, experiences I shared with you from my past. Although we typically are taught to meditate by focusing on an object, he points at that, the method that using that method can cause your mind to contract on that object and begin to interpret, conceptualize, and think. Yet, he says, if you just relax into being aware, not on any one object, but of awareness itself, that contraction around objects will relax. And you will relax into a space of receptivity, free of any goal or anticipation. It is there, I believe, that meditation is supposed to take us. 
Yet, as we have already experienced, that awareness is there for us to use without even trying. It's the trying that seems to block it. You know, I gave a Dharma talk about four or five years ago, which I talked about the danger of dedicating ourselves to a spiritual path and even the more treacherous activity of dedication to being a teacher of the Dharma or a Buddhist teacher. I called it, quote, hunting the great awakened, awakened elephant. I explained how attaching to our egos as our refuge is ever present and proportionate to our desire to attend the end goal that we have set our sights on. Whatever that end might be, great meditator, dedicated practitioner, teacher, enlightenment, whatever. And it's my experience when I drop all the trying and all the focus on some goal or some way to be, I am able to rest in a completely open moment where everything seems natural and free. In that Dharma talk, I shared a Dharma song or poem that first captivated me some 20 plus years ago when I was studying and practicing in the Tibetan tradition. It's called Free and Easy, a spontaneous Vajra song by the venerable Lama Gundan Rinpoche, who was a senior Kagyu Lama and a Mahamudra master. So I think it's appropriate that I end this podcast episode with this song today. Free and Easy, a spontaneous Vajra song. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do or undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all, has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and then reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. But as soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any farther. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Emma Ho, marvelous, everything happens by itself. 
So that's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining me and thanks to everyone who's donated and commented on my podcast over the past weeks. I always try to reach out with a private email of thanks, but, you know, be patient because I'm a little behind. Each week, I'm thrilled to say that more and more of you have commented, asked questions, suggested podcast subjects. I hear you, but it may take me a little time to get in touch, but I will. And as always, if you like this podcast, please consider supporting my work through a reoccurring or one-time donation on my Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash everydaybuddhism or through the donation page on my website www.everyday-buddhism.com So until next time, keep making your everydays better.